If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray strandum wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and relove our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The most exciting part of a vacation stay at a home rental? Easy. It's being greeted upon arrival with a rusted lockbox affixed to the underside of a stranger's condo. Yeah, you simply twist knobs, click gears, jiggle it, and then rip it off its moorings, and voila! Your prize is a key to a questionable home rental and maybe tetanus. When you just want to get your vacation started by actually getting into your room, it matters where you stay. At Hilton, we deliver your key right to your phone on the Hilton Honors app. Hilton for the stay. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Even in the ancient Roman world of ruthless politicking, suspicious deaths and high-stakes schemes, the scandalous reputation of the Empress Valeria Messalina stands out. The third wife of Emperor Claudius, she's gone down in history as a sexually insatiable schemer, whose cutthroat deeds kept her at the top of the Palatine court. Speaking with Emily Briffitt, Honor Cargill-Martin, the author of a new book on Messalina, interrogates the rumours that have long swirled around the Empress. Hi, Anna. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So you and I are going to be delving into a world of sex, slander and scandal set amidst the imperial politics of ancient Rome. But first, I think we may need to introduce our leading lady. Who was Messalina? Messalina is... Empress of Rome as the wife of the Emperor Claudius. And she's in power from the time of Claudius's accession in 41 AD until her own execution in these quite mysterious and like wildly melodramatic circumstances at the end of 48 AD. During that time period, she is incredibly influential and powerful 
within this Palatine court in Rome. And she's pretty ruthless in the ways in which she kind of maintains that power and also maintains the position of her children. Because she has two children with Claudius, Octavia and her son Britannicus. And she does essentially everything that she needs to do to maintain her own power and the position of those children. There are also lots of rumours about her love affairs and her sexuality, which I'm sure we'll get into later. Just for context, we're talking about the Julio-Claudian dynasty here. Can you just set us up with a bit of background for listeners who might not be aware about this dynasty? Yeah, for sure. So the Julio-Claudians are Rome's first imperial dynasty. So for most of Rome's history before this point, Rome has been a republic. It's been ruled by a kind of aristocratic senate and elected magistrates. After the civil wars, there are about half a century of civil wars during the first century BC. And towards the end of that, we see kind of the wars between Pompey and Julius Caesar, who I'm sure everyone has heard of. And then out of that comes Rome's first emperor, Augustus. And what Augustus really offers is, I suppose, peace, prosperity, and stability. And in return for that, he asks essentially autocratic power. And Augustus establishes his own rule, and he rules for a very long time. And when he dies, he passes that rule on to his stepson, Tiberius. And so begins kind of this Julio-Claudian dynasty, where power is passed on, not directly hereditarily, but kind of within this within this imperial family. And it is a dynasty that is racked with rumours of lots of politically motivated murder, lots of sexual perversion. This is a period when politics has really been drawn from a kind of outward-facing Senate and these kind of very public assemblies and speeches that are being made in the forum into a world that is much more closed off. Politics is now being done within the imperial courts. And that is a really significant shift that people are still contending with by the time that Messalina comes into power, kind of about 50 years after the first establishment of the dynasty. So I feel we're going to be touching on all these power plays and politicking throughout this conversation. But I think we should probably start right back at the beginning. Let's talk about Messalina's life. How did she come to be Empress? Do we know much about her background and her life beforehand? So we know very little about her life before she becomes Empress, and that's not surprising or rare. The ancient world isn't that interested in general um, in childhood, and particularly in the childhood of women. Very often we have the birth dates of kind of important men. We almost never actually have the birth dates of important women. They tend to enter the historical record only upon their marriages to politically significant men, which I think tells you a lot about how women were kind of perceived in this period. So we know very little about Messalina's like actual day-to-day kind of experiences before her marriage to Claudius, which occurs in around 38 AD. We do know, however, that she is born into this immensely illustrious imperial family. She is kind of born into, I suppose, like a sub-branch of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. Her parents are wildly well-connected within this new like imperial elite. And so she is essentially born to make a good and a powerful marriage. When she marries Claudius in 38 AD, I think that no one could really have had any conception that within a few years he would be emperor and she would be empress. When she marries him, she's probably around 18, although, as I said, we're not entirely sure of her birth date. And Claudius is nearing 50. And for much of his life, he's been very sidelined. He is a very direct descendant of the Julio-Claudians, but he has some sort of kind of physical disabilities or chronic illnesses, which 
historians have tried to identify. It's a, it's a difficult, it's a difficult question. But they'd led to him being sidelined by the imperial family who saw him as potentially like an embarrassment or a suggestion that their, that their bloodline wasn't this kind of perfect thing that they were trying to, trying to make out in their propaganda. And so he'd been sidelined for much of his life. When he marries Messalina, he is being promoted for the first time by his nephew, the, the infamous Emperor Caligula. And his marriage to Messalina, who is this very well-connected, very wealthy kind of imperial heiress, and who also is young and reportedly beautiful, I think is part of that promotion. But for the first couple of years of their marriage, the, the couple are courtiers essentially at the wild and absolutely like insane court of Caligula. It's only a few years later upon Caligula's assassination that Claudius and Messalina actually ascend to the throne itself. So can you set the scene for us? What was the imperial court like at this time? Absolutely wild. So Caligula in particular sets up, I think, this court that is really like actually quite actively interested in the almost theatrical display of tyranny. Caligula loves to create these immensely almost surreal experiences for his court that demonstrate how far his power can go. There's this one instance where he takes the entire court down to the Bay of Naples and he builds this bridge made out of boats across the entire like span of the bay. And then he builds what looks like a normal Roman road like across these boats with all these kind of rest stops for horses and kind of places where people can get snacks. It literally is built to look like a road on land, but it is directly across the water. And then he rides in triumph, wearing what he claims is the breastplate of Alexander the Great, across this bridge of ships. And then he claims that he's essentially ridden in triumph across the water. And some people say that this is because he sees himself as kind of having won a victory over Neptune. Some people say that this is because a fortune teller once had told him that he had much chance of being emperor as of riding over like the Bay of Naples on the water. And so these are these really like theatrical displays of absolute power that we see going on in the Julio-Claudian court in this period. And then in the more day-to-day sense, it's equally as intense, I suppose, because the politics of this period are so cutthroat and so dangerous. It is all about kind of your personal connection to the emperor, your influence, your kind of network of associations. And this is a place of endless kind of intrigues and competition and personal rivalry. Why was the politicking of this period quite so savage, quite so brutal? It's a very interesting question. I think that it is so brutal for a number of reasons. I think firstly, the stakes are incredibly high. So if you are emperor, you know that the only way of you stopping being emperor is by dying. And so emperors are very keen on holding onto their power because they know if they start to kind of lose control, they're probably going to get assassinated. So once Claudius and Messalina are in power, they're very, very aware of the very immediate dangers of their position because they had literally watched their predecessors get hacked to death in the imperial palace. Caligula is murdered very brutally by a sort of alliance of his enemies. By the end of his reign, he's managed to alienate essentially everyone. Um, and so he is he's murdered in this incredibly brutal... It's so brutal that there are rumours that people had been kind of eating bits of his flesh. Like, that's how, that's how brutal it got. 
And alongside Caligula, his wife and his baby daughter had actually also very tragically been murdered as well because they were seen as potential threats like going forward. And so I think Claudius, but also Messalina particularly too, are like incredibly aware once they come to power of the danger that they're in, essentially. Messalina knows that if she or if Claudius kind of lose any form of control over the people who should be their supporters, then their lives are in very immediate danger. And so are the lives of their children. Messalina's daughter is almost exactly the same age as Caligula's daughter was. And so I think Messalina, even from the first day of her power, is is very aware that she has to do absolutely anything that she can to stay kind of in control and on top. And do we see this sort of driving force continue throughout their reign? Yeah, I think definitely. So Messalina, as we'll see, after her death comes to be this kind of symbol of essentially uncontrolled sexuality. And almost all of the stories about her kind of political actions are subsumed into that narrative of Messalina as this kind of nymphomaniac, this like femme fatale, I suppose. But if we actually dig down into what she's doing and we actually look at the political decisions that she makes and when she makes them, I think it's very clear that the vast majority of them at least are made in order to kind of stave off any potential threats to either her own power, and so her own primacy among, I suppose, like the women of the Palatine, or actually to her husband's power, because she knows that her fortunes and the fortunes of her children are completely bound up with Claudius's kind of continued supremacy. And so I think that we actually see Messalina, for the vast majority of her reign, behaving in ways that are ruthless. I mean, she's very willing to kind of scheme against her enemies, have her enemies exiled, executed, kind of as as everyone in, in this world and this time period was. She's very willing to do that. But I think that we see that her actions are definitely driven by essentially pragmatism. She's making choices to remove people that she sees as potential threats. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Add a berry blast off for your day with the new berry pebbles. 
a berry twist on a classic breakfast. Perfect for giving those growing minds a blast of creativity. <laughs> with a new berry way to pebbles. Yabba dabba do you with berry pebbles. Head to postpebblescereal.com to learn more. Yabba dabba do and the Flintstones and all related characters and elements. Copyright and trademark Hanna-Barbera. Here we have this reputation of Messalina being almost one of the most notorious women in the Roman world. You've sort of gone into it slightly as we've been chatting. What exactly made her so notorious? After Messina's death, she's subject to something that we now call Damnate Memoriae. So her statues are smashed, her name is chiseled off inscriptions, and it creates this almost like vacuum of reputation that allows people to create and spread rumors, some of which may have been kind of circulating before Messalina's death. But it, I think that this destruction of her reputation creates this, this perfect petri dish for gossip, essentially. And within the, the decades that follow Messalina's death, we start to see the emergence of these really very outlandish rumors about her sexuality. So there is a rumor that appears actually in Pliny's Natural History, ironically, that Messalina had held a sex competition with the most notorious courtesan in Rome for who could sleep with more men in 24 hours. And Messalina had actually won, Pliny tells us, with a total of 25. And Pliny uses this as actually scientific evidence, essentially, for the fact that he argues that humans are the only animals that are sexually insatiable. And so clearly we see that by this point, not that long after Messalina's death, she's she's entered the Roman thought process as like an archetype of totally uncontrolled sexuality. There are other very famous rumors about her as well. So Juvenal, for example, the Roman satirist claimed that she would like leave the imperial palace every night and go disguise herself in this blonde wig and this cloak and go into the slums of Rome and work in this like low-class brothel. And even at the end of her shift, she was the last person to leave. And even then, you know, she wasn't satisfied. And so these incredibly kind of outlandish theatrical rumors about her sexuality are also combined with more, I suppose, run-of-the-mill rumors, some of which, of course, might have been plausible. So rumors that she had an affair with a man called Monesta, who was one of the most kind of famous superstar actors and dancers of the Roman stage, a rumor that she had an affair with a very famously handsome aristocrat called Gaius Silius, who's very involved in her downfall, rumors that she had affairs, honestly, with, with lots of the men who were, who were powerful in the Palatine court at this time. Uh, and so a lot of what I was doing in the book was kind of trying to pick apart which of those stories might be plausible and which ones we kind of have to have to lay aside. So would you mind giving us a sense of what ones are actually plausible? What ones are probably real? Yeah, so I think that with a character like Marcelina, where you have such a weight of rumour surrounding her and a, a very, I mean, there's a very consistent narrative when it comes to Marcelina. And a lot of that obviously is about kind of how Roman historians like create these, these archetypal characters. But it also potentially does give us some insight into how people thought about her contemporaneously. And so I don't think that we necessarily can set aside totally this idea of Messalina as a very sexual person, as an adulteress. And certainly adultery was something that was was a major concern in this period. And it appears to have been something that was not definitely not entirely unheard of. Messalina was an 18-year-old girl married to an almost 
50-year-old man. And so when we see these kind of very consistent rumors about having her having these quite long-running affairs, so particularly with Monesta, who's this, this stage star, and with Gaius Silius, who's this aristocrat, I think that in those stories, we might find much more of a grain of truth than in these kind of outlandish tales of competitions of like sexual stamina. Is this kind of reputation common to be attributed to Roman women? I can't think of another Roman woman who has a reputation quite so bad in this way as Messalina's is. She's quite exceptional. Uh, She really becomes, I would say, the archetypal bad woman in a sexual sense. But I think what is important to note is that this isn't the only way of slandering powerful women in Rome. There are other options that you can choose from. So for example, Messalina's successor, Agrippina, is also presented as a very dangerous kind of bad, in inverted commas, woman. But she's presented as being bad in almost exactly the opposite way to Messalina. So Messalina is presented as this like hyper-passionate, feminine, sensual, irrational figure. Whereas Agrippina, and she's presented as being kind of transgressive in that sense, almost being kind of too feminine in a space, a political space that kind of should be masculine. Whereas Agrippina, her successor, is presented as being transgressive because she behaves in a way that is inherently too masculine. She's presented as being too rational, too ambitious. All of her actions are presented as being planned out and conceived entirely within this like program of self-promotion and ambition that she's like created for herself. And that's seen as being transgressive, but in almost entirely the opposite direction to Messalina's transgressions. So how was a Roman empress actually meant to act? What was the feminine ideal? That is such an interesting question. And I think the truth is there was no way that you could win as an ancient Roman empress. Because the problem is that the figure of the ancient Roman empress is an inherently kind of contradictory one. So Roman politics during the Republican period is almost designed entirely and explicitly to exclude women. All of the assemblies are male, all of the magistrates are male, the Senate is obviously all male. And these kind of public spaces actually serve to exclude women almost entirely. And they see the influence of women as being almost kind of unrepublican and potentially sinister. When we start to see the shift to empire and then the emergence of these kind of forms of court politics, the emerging power of women in those structures, which obviously happens completely naturally because women are mothers of the heirs that are now much more important under this dynastic system. And also because in this world, what really matters is not your position in the Senate. What really matters is the extent to which you have immediate and kind of unencumbered access to the emperor himself. And obviously, if you are the emperor's wife, sister, daughter, you have much more immediate access to him than a kind of aristocratic man from another family might. And so naturally, women become much more important in this system. And so the emerging power of women is actually seen as a sinister symbol of all of the dangers that people see in this kind of new autocratic political system. And so I think a lot of people's anxieties, and particularly a lot of kind of that male senatorial elite's anxieties about this new system that to some extent has kind of sidelined some of their old traditional powers, a lot of those anxieties, I think, are channeled into 
concerns about the position of women. And so we see all of these stories about kind of women acting sinisterly behind the closed doors of the Palatine Court. You know, they're poisoning people, they're having these secret affairs. It's always this kind of nefarious, dark influence. And I think that that is really indicative of much wider anxieties about the changing political system. And so I think the problem with being a Roman empress is that to a lot of people, just the fact of having power as a woman is an intrinsically problematic thing. And so there's almost there's almost no way to win. I suppose the best way, the ideal way to be a Roman empress is to have lots of children and, and kind of not talk about it. Just never really say anything. Be as kind of pretty as you can, as silent as you can, and give your husband lots of children who really, really look like him and are definitely his and no one ever says you might have had an affair. So what do the sources of the time actually tell us about Messalina and the world around her? In this period, it's it's quite a strange period to work with in a way because we actually have, we have a lot of source material. We have much more information about this period of Roman history than we do about kind of the period of Roman history, I suppose, between the last half of the first century BC and kind of the first half of the first century AD. We have more information about this period than we do about almost any period until late medieval period. We have three major written sources for this period, Tacitus, Suetonius, and Cassius Dio. And we also have a wealth of archaeological evidence, lots of statues, lots of inscriptions, lots of architecture. Of course, we also have Pompeii, which is this amazing time capsule of how people lived in this period, which I think provides us with this amazing kind of sense of like psychological access to how these, the world in which these people were existing, I would say. That being said, I think that that kind of wealth of evidence can create an almost dangerous illusion that we know a lot about this period, because actually almost all of the evidence, and particularly the written evidence, carries with it significant issues in terms of how we use it. All of those major sources of writing, obviously, after Messalina dies, during kind of new dynasties, which are really defining themselves in kind of relation and opposition to this first dynasty. I think because the Julio-Claudians are the first imperial dynasty, they really are very important to how later Romans kind of existing within the empire later on think about their political system and kind of define their political system. And I think they tend to get really mythologized because of that. It's like the Julio-Claudians become almost like a way for the Roman Empire to think about itself. And so there are all these layers of kind of political agenda, I think, that are placed on the writing of this period of history. And all of those historians have like a slightly different kind of personal agenda, personal take on it, um, personal relationship with those themes. And I think the other thing to note is that Roman historians see the writing of history as a literary pursuit as well as kind of a, a sort of analytical one, I suppose, as, as well as they're not just trying to access the facts of the past, they also really see themselves as writing within a literary genre. And they see kind of, I suppose, the creation of characters and the very kind of distinctive characterization of their historical figures and the use of theatrical framing, setting, all of these kind of what we would call literary devices. I think they see them as like very legitimate ways to convey the historical points that they're trying to make. And so that's also something you have to take into account. And of course, that is even more significant when you're working with women because women's lives happen so much more in this period behind closed doors that they're much easier to kind of characterize in the way that the writers, kind of whichever way the writers want to characterize it, I suppose. 
looking at Messalina, we also probably need to take a little look at Claudius as well. Where does he fit into this rumour mill? Yeah, it's really, Claudius is a really, really interesting figure. Claudius, when, when you read the sources, he is portrayed as, in general, being a very sort of surprisingly good emperor. He comes to power upon the assassination of Caligula, and I think everyone is like a little concerned. He hasn't really had a public role for most of his life. And then everyone seems quite surprised when actually he turns out to be quite a good ruler. And in the sources, the, the really only criticism that they level against Claudius is that he's weak. He's too easily led by his wives and by his imperial freedmen. So they are kind of advisors who had once been slaves who become incredibly important personal, personal assistants, personal advisors to the emperor. And so the sources' main criticism of Claudius is that he himself is like a good man and a good ruler, but that his advisors and his wives lead him astray and kind of influence him into these like slightly corrupt ways, right? But when we actually look at the the evidence that we have of this period, Claudius is is really a very ruthless ruler. I mean, the number of executions that we have on record from Claudius's reign is significantly more than the number of senatorial executions that we have from the reign of Tiberius, who seemed to be this kind of bloodthirsty tyrant. And so I think Claudius actually and I, I, I'm not sure whether this was something that he kind of tried to do consciously or whether this is something that is done on his behalf by the sources. But I think that Claudius gets away with a lot because I think a lot of the bad points of his reign and the tyrannical elements of his reign are kind of almost subsumed by the figures of his wives and his freedmen. In a way, Messalina's ruthlessness isn't too far from how cutthroat Roman politics was itself. Yeah, I think Messalina is incredibly cutthroat. And I think that that is a product of the world in which she's living. Messalina enters this world of Caligula's court when she's only 18-ish, when she marries Claudius. And that is where she first kind of really observes how to do politics. And I think that it would be impossible to exist in that world and not learn incredibly quickly that it really is, it sounds dramatic, but it really is kill or be killed. And especially once you've been promoted to the rank of empress, which is not something that Messalina necessarily had any real say in. When she married Claudius, she had no idea that he was going to become emperor. There's no indication that she's kind of involved in the conspiracy that makes him emperor. When she becomes empress, she's she's eight months pregnant with her son and heir Britannicus. And so when she witnesses the murder of Caligula, his wife, his young daughter, I think that she must have been hyper, hyper, hyper aware that in order to maintain this position, she had to do absolutely everything that she possibly could. And she shows herself to be incredibly willing and incredibly able to do that. She is incredibly good at doing court politics. She's very involved in a lot of intrigue. She builds these networks of freedmen and senators who will kind of help her do this. And she's willing to go to really quite what we would call very extreme lengths to remove her enemies. Something I find very interesting about Messalina is she shows herself very willing to use accusations of adultery actually against other women that she perceives to be threats to her within the imperial court. And so I think that's a very interesting dynamic. And she also, you know, has a lot of her enemies exiled, executed, and in certain cases, allegedly just flat out murdered. These are not strange things in the world of Julio-Claudian politics. This is totally par for the course. Can you chart some of her successes and scandals for us? 
So I think that she moves incredibly quickly and becomes very adept at court politics very quickly because she clearly builds up these networks of alliances and structures to help her in the first year of her reign. Because before that year is up, she has removed a very potentially dangerous rival, a woman named uh, Julia Lavilla, who was the sister of Caligula. She is a niece of Claudius. And she had been an incredibly powerful influence on the Palatine. She'd actually been exiled by Caligula and has been brought back by Claudius and has seems to have kind of started to work to rebuild those systems of influence for herself. And Messalina, I don't think wrongly, identified that this was a potential threat to her position. And within the year, Julia Lavilla has been accused of adultery with the philosopher and courtier Seneca, and they've both been exiled. And Julia Lavilla dies quite quickly in exile, probably kind of forced to suicide or potentially executed. It's always a little dodgy when people die in Julia Claudia in exile. We're never quite sure what happened. And then a year after that, we see her very involved in the fall of a man named Apius Solana, who's married to her mother. And he is an incredibly influential and powerful political figure, and actually potentially a threat to the stability of Claudius's own position. And when we see this this intrigue reported in the sources, it's really interesting because this is reported as an intrigue that is essentially all to do with Messalina's private life. It's claimed that she falls in love with Solana's really, really um, lusts after him and he refuses to sleep with her. And so she engineers his murder. She and her kind of best ally, the freedman Narcissus, claim that they've both had the same dream that he's going to come and try and murder Claudius. And they've then called for Apius to kind of join them this morning. They've told him like, oh, Claudius really wants to see you. So they they reveal to Claudius that they've had this dream. Then Apius Solanus arrives very early into Claudius's room and he is immediately kind of captured by the guards and executed. And so in the sources, we see this as being very much kind of Messalina's intrigue and all about her sexuality, her lust, her totally like uncontrolled passion. But in reality, this is almost certainly a political coup that is being kind of arranged between Messalina and Claudius on a regime level to take care of a man who could potentially be a serious threat to their stability. At the start, you mentioned that she had a very mysterious and dramatic fall, full of absolute intrigue. What led to this and how did it happen? For the first couple of years of Messalina's ascendancy on the Palatine, we see her, as we've seen, kind of very effectively working these these roots of court politics to stabilise her position, to stabilise Claudius's regime, to stabilise the position of her children. She has a very busy couple of years kind of murdering her political enemies towards the start of her regime. And then once her position is much more stable, she seems to calm down, which in and of itself sort of mitigates against this idea that she is like uncontrolled, irrational, passionate. So the political murders seem to tail off uh, quite significantly once her position is very established. Then suddenly, towards the end of her life, in kind of 47-ish, 48 AD, things start to get a little busier again. She seems to remove a very powerful imperial freedman who had once been a very close ally of hers named Polybius. And she then makes an attack on a man named Valerius Asiaticus, who is 
one of the richest and most powerful senatorial figures at Rome. And Messalina's attack on Valerius Asiaticus actually does end up being successful. He is convicted of a number of kind of trumped up charges and is forced to commit suicide. But there is a point during this trial where things seem to be going against Messalina. There's a point where it looks like Valerius Asiaticus might actually turn the tables and get off. And so I think by the end of that trial and towards the end of 47 and into 48 AD, Messalina's allies, I think, are beginning to perceive her as something of a loose cannon. She's removed one of her old allies, so I think people are starting to think that they themselves might not be safe. She's made a play that nearly went very, very wrong that was kind of a big gamble. And so I think people are starting to get worried, potentially, about her political judgment. It's also possible that she is engaging in certain affairs at this point, potentially relatively indiscreetly. She's alleged to be having this increasingly passionate affair with a man named Gaius Silius, who is the most handsome aristocrat in Rome, essentially. And it's claimed that she does this very publicly, very unsubtly, isn't kind of hiding her passion for Silius. And if that's true, I think that that would have added to these kind of concerns about, about her judgment. And so at the end of 48, we see this incredibly dramatic event that ends with Messalina dead. How it's reported in the sources is that Claudius goes away on this business trip to the port city of Ostia and Messalina is left alone in Rome. She is desperately in love with Gaius Silius and so the two decide that they are going to have a bigamous wedding. They're going to get married while Claudius is away and then when Claudius returns they're going to essentially mount a coup and take the throne from Claudius. The sources say that Narcissus, Messalina's old ally, the freedman advisor of Claudius, reveals this plot to Claudius while he's in Ostia, brings Claudius back to the city. Messalina and Gaius Silius are found, the wedding party is broken up. Silius is executed along with kind of a string of Messalina's other ex-lovers. So she tries to make her case to her husband Claudius. Narcissus forces her to leave. He's scared that if Claudius sees her, he's going to kind of fall in love with her again and forgive her. Claudius says that he'll see her the next day and Narcissus engineers her execution before that can happen. I think that that story is, is very dubious for a number of reasons. There's no real evidence that Messalina and Silius ever attempt to mount a coup against Claudius. And I think that if you're taking the step of bigamously marrying your lover while your husband, the emperor of the known world, is kind of really not that far away, you're, you're going to have like a plan for what you're going to do next. Messalina also has no real motivation to do this. Like this wouldn't improve her position in any way and it would suddenly put her children into much more significant danger than they would be in if kind of Claudius remains in power. And so I think what we're actually seeing here, the most likely kind of course of events is that this is essentially a coup that has been planned against Messalina by her erstwhile allies within the imperial household who have begun to see her as a threat to the sort of status quo and their own positions. And so this whole thing is essentially engineered by Narcissus in order to get rid of Messalina. And that is done very effectively. Messalina is murdered in the pleasure garden she owns in Rome. And the news is brought to Claudius that she's dead. And he allegedly doesn't ask whether she killed herself or was executed. He just asks for another glass of wine. What was the average life expectancy in this period amongst all the politicking? Surely it can't have been particularly long. I would imagine that your life expectancy 
went up significantly the rich you got and down significantly the close you got to the imperial family in this period. It's not a good bet to be in the imperial court. You're, you're in danger all the time. And so I think, so Messalina probably dies before her 30th birthday, which obviously it's, it's not great going. But I think what people very often have forgotten about Messalina is that she maintains her position at the top of the most cutthroat court on earth for the best part of a decade. And during that time, she wields immense power, engages in a number of quite kind of risky and very effective political intrigues. And she does all of this very effectively for really quite a long time. And the fact that she eventually is beaten and falls and is executed, I think shouldn't wipe out the fact that she had been very successful for a very long time as a woman as well in, in a world that is entirely male-dominated. And if we look at her success at Agrippina, who's presented, as we'd said in the sources, as this kind of ultimate political schema and being potentially evil, but very intelligent, very clever, very kind of dangerously forward-thinking and politically minded, I suppose. Agrippina is probably ascendant and in power for pretty similar period of time as Messalina is. And yet we are presented with such different visions of their intelligence, their motivation and their success. And I think that that all comes down to how their sexuality is presented, sadly. And I think it's, it's a pretty common theme that we find. That was Onikaga Martin, classicist and author of Messalina, a story of empire, slander and adultery, which is available now, published by Bloomsbury. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.